Welcome to the Goth Academy podcast. Hi, everybody. Hello, Mallory. Hey. hey. <laughs> so I think you will be our first Goth Rebutter. That's awesome. <laughs> so this is like the, the, the project where we have patrons come over on the podcast to talk about Game of Thrones and to try to have interesting thoughtful conversations that give us whatever maybe a new angle that we haven't thoroughly discussed and uh, Mallory do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and then from there we can understand what you want to talk about sure thing I am a patron obviously um, I've been listening to God Academy now for about a year and a half and I was just really brought in by all the academics and kind of like the applicative theory that you bring to Game of Thrones. And I really enjoyed like the, the blending of it. And um, it kind of really fits into what I do, um, which is linguistics. I do uh, ESL studies and applied linguistics at Georgia State University. What we try to do is understand and help facilitate more the requirement of English as a second language or a foreign language for English speakers we could be very broad and very specific with it of course so let's let's start with the broad and I think we can get as uh, when we get into the, into the conversation we can talk about your personal experiences which we talked about mirror some of my personal experiences right with right. the second and third languages so so just like in general how do you apply that knowledge and uh, your this passion into Game of Thrones the universe where where do you see that how does that correlate well you can do it in like two ways so the way that I've divided up one is uh, the the I guess like a funner way which is you actually like explore the world in terms of linguistics so you're talking about like what is Westerosi or, or SOC and culture like what is their sociology like what are the conditions necessary to create language development in this world and then you can look at it from how linguists are supposed to look at it which is like this is a this is a real text you know George R. R. Martin has put in you know about three million plus words you know and wow. we can only study kind of more applicable questions of just like how is george r martin's writing style you know like inferent of you know this event could we relate like this data point to what's being said in the text things like for example um for example. well like you're you're uh one of your patrons has an interesting kind of statistics app where they can input like certain variables like x and y and it would be able to like graph it like by who said it the most like it's tokens you know kind of like danny is most often like associated with the word probably like fire or dreams and so if you wanted to, realistically, you could download a, a corpus or it's a, a database and you could compare this with other texts like uh, the Bible. Uh, the <laughs> like the lesser text, the Bible. Right. Okay. You know, just like George R. <laughs> you know, Lord of the Rings, George yeah. R. R. Martin, <laughs> the Bible. <laughs> the Bible. Yeah, whatever, whatever. But I think that it could it could serve for like the broad purposes that we're talking about in terms of like real world data comparisons because you would have like this ancient text that could be or not be true you know historically it could have happened it could not have happened we just don't know but there's there are the words and what we've acquired and the frequency at which we use them and that 
in and of itself is just uh, corpus linguistics. It's only like one way to look at it too. But I think that the other way is a lot more fun. Yeah, let's, let's start with the first one. Okay, so there are all kinds of different languages in Essos. Mm-hmm. In Westeros, there's common tongue. Yeah. Which is also known as English. English, yeah. English. It's actually interesting that you say that because in interviews, George R. R. Martin, uh, he's explicitly stated that common tongue is not English. But here's a, here's a real uh, linguistic paradox is that how can you know if something is not English if you're reading it in English? You know, it's kind of like, can your mind like come up with what that language is supposed to be? What does it mean that it's not English? What is it then? I don't know. Like that's a it's such, that's what makes it such an interesting question is that like that's where the sociology would come into play and that's where we would have to kind of you be helpful with other fields and have to go into something like psycholinguistics or you know sociolinguistics. You would have to use these other fields to kind of bolster your own uh, research and I think like if you wanted to explore kind of what the common tongue like is, you know, you would have to like start small. There's no um, a priori like text for it. There's no moment where Arya George R. R. Martin himself like writes in the common tongue. There's there's no instance of that. Not yet. Maybe maybe we'll have somebody really smart develop a real common tongue. You know, I think that he's that he's wrong. If I dare say so. Sorry, oh, George, if you're listening. He... <laughs> he is wrong. He is wrong. And why, it, <laughs> and why it is English is because he has in his uh, in his books all kinds of instances where he uses languages that are not English. Right. That are from French or from Italian, right? Or de- or, or derived from real human history, and actually, I don't like it when it, like I think there's the words uh, the word uh, piazza, and there's like a word that comes from French. I don't remember which one now off the top of my head. And there he exposes the fact that it is English, and that English sometimes has French words. Yes. <laughs> in in this world, there is no French. Right. There is no Italian. No that word would, would, would not exist. And there's none of the systems that exist with that. But I think that's what's so interesting and, in like, why you could make a case why common tongue is just really English is because um, you have kind of, like, the same sociological factors as exist in our world for something like English to exist. So, and yeah. plus, too, like, we just... Like, explain, like, elaborate a little bit about that, about the, the sociological factors that uh, create a language. What you're exposed to as a child, it has just an insurmountable effect on how you will not just process language, but process your experience. And like linguists believe, or they argue over how these two things happen. And I'm, I'm speaking very slowly because I, I can get very confused <laughs> myself very easily. So one is that your native language is kind of hardwired into you. Everybody's right. born with this LAD. Now what? He Chomsky. He Chomsky. Yeah. The bigger he. The, the big he. The big he. But but even he says he's wrong. So God, you know, oh. like we can we can kind of poke fun at Chomsky a little bit. So Chomsky believed that we are not these tabula rasas. That we're not these blank slates. Humans are hardwired to just soak up any information and dissect and dichotomize by like. It's just what we do. We just naturally decode things. Now, where linguists argue is, are the processes for native language the same as how you will learn 
a second language is grammar. So you're innately going to learn your first one by psychological behaviors. You're going to mimic, you're going to imitate, you know, you're going to cry for things that you want. And then the person, your caregiver, you know, your, your provider, you know, responds to it and you build off of it. And then this is how interactions start. So where linguists are concerned, I think the big argument with them is that some see the process as one and the same, that we learn L1 and L2 the same way. Others believe that we learn it by two separate processes. And some believe that it's actually a blend, that we start out separate, but we come in towards the one. And I think that's really interesting in terms, if we think about this in the context of like the the fantasy like world of Westeros and Essos, okay. like if you can see it from kind of like this Vygotskian meld of the, the social interaction and the grammar that you're remembering, then it, it kind of makes poetic sense because you would have um, characters who they're starting out as like two separate people. For instance, like Arya is, you know, the no one, you know, then she's the Stark. Eventually the two have to reconcile. I think okay. a lot of languages can be attributed to that kind of journey too. So it, it just, it thematically, I, I'm not saying like it could work like, Oh, like, you know, this is it, but I'm just saying it's yeah. a, it's a nice like little flair that that's there in the characters. Right. Also maybe Daenerys, right. She's Valyrian. Right. She, she speaks the common tongue, which, which is she most, is she most more Westerosi, more Targaryen Valyrian. I think like for all intents and purposes, I would ascribe Daenerys Targaryen as a native Valyrian. Like, she kind of... She wasn't even really born in the holdfast of Westeros. She's born on Dragonstone. She's whisked away. But then again, like, if I think about it, too, there's a phenomenon in linguistics called, like, language isolation. And a lot of, like, what happened under Aegon's conquest and fire and blood could be an interesting exploration into that whole side. Daenerys is such an interesting topic to me. Like, I think she would be... Yeah, she's like a linguist's dream. She's like, whoa. Right, because she learned the common tongue even though she lived in a place where that's not the common tongue. Pardon the pun. And she grew up in a place too where it's like debated. Some people think that she grew up in Bravos, so she would be speaking Bravosi. But then other people think that, you know, she grew up in Pento, so she'd be speaking Pento. She... The point is, is that her and Viserys would be speaking three, four, five languages at a time, like constantly juggling it, like, you know, and having to deal with that. And it really sets up like this whole big split between why she's so successful in Westeros or sorry, why she's so successful in Essos. Yes. In the show, not not in the books. She's not doing too hot in the books. Um, (laughs) uh, And then like like her complete and utter failure in Westeros and I think a large part of that is is that like one if we can just get past like the reaction of just like it's just kind of clumsy writing but if you can get kind of more into the meat of it then I think like Daenerys's failings is her failure to to integrate the Westerosi part of her into her Valyrian self in a sense does that I don't know if that like is okay yeah no no it makes super sense thematically character wise and also from a like 
psychologically yeah. and also from a linguistic perspective. Definitely, definitely. She brings over also politically things that are not needed in Westeros, right? She, like her whole Essosian identity, and which is kind of anti-Valyrian in some sense, right? She wants to break uh, the chains, the breaker of chains, the chains that the Valyrians uh, have initially put. And then she's bringing that over to Westeros where people, uh, there's no uh, buyers for that kind of... Uh... What is a chain? What is chain? Yeah. What is it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that concept is not uh, doesn't uh, resonate. So it fits like in all kinds of different ways. It makes me think of a really like, it's one of my favorite Russian history. And it's one of like, like billions that I know because I'm a huge nerd for Russian history. But... Um, one of it is Peter the Great went on his, you know, beautiful European tour and then he comes back to Russia and he's like, I've been all over the world and we're backwards AF and we've got to clean it up right now. So I want every farmer out here to build me one boat for my Amarada and they, you know, and I want everybody to cut their beards and stop putting bombs and logs and like they went out and they were telling the peasants all this and they're like, okay, the, the czar wants you to build a boat. And you're in this landlocked country. Yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> what's a boat? What's a boat? Yeah, what? What is that? So I like thinking about it in terms of like, yes, we have these big overarching kind of like what the finale was talking about of who has the decision. You have these like monolithic characters like Daenerys who have choices and have an identity. But I think it just goes to show that people like the small folk are, are just really kind of, like, brushed aside, but they really shouldn't have been. I think all the time, like, you're supposed to always try to consider it. Because um, one of the the criticisms that I got about it was, why couldn't Daenerys have really, like, reached out and, like, gotten to the people of King's Landing, you know? And it's like, yeah. well, in order for that to happen, you know, you would have to have certain parameters be met linguistically speaking you know you would have to have kind of like i don't i don't know i think all forms of language interaction involve some form of oppressed oppress you know the oppressed the oppressor dichotomy okay. so it's always going to like turn around i've always hmm. thought that like an interesting way for the story that one way that it could have gone was that it was about the development of the small peoples like kind of like a magna carta this emergence of yeah uh, like this reformed, uh, <laughs> that that was before Cersei blew up the Sept. <laughs> like I, ju I just keep on like thinking of all these like great like long plays like just forever that you could just show the the progress of time through, and then it's like no 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 we're just gonna we're just gonna blow it up. All right, cool. But it doesn't have to be linear. No, you know you could have like whatever a crater and then move on. But you know what? Now now that you're talking about it, it makes me think. So I'm not sure how much I don't don't know how much credit I want to give D and D for that. But let's say the unsullied, they are the oppressed who become the oppressor. Right. And her speaking Valyrian, uh, in Wester in in the capital of Westeros, right. she's basically speaking Valyrian, a foreign tongue. To the people who... Why do you think everybody's people, like... Yeah, they're like... They're, everyone's like looking around. They're just like, what is she saying? Yeah, like, I don't know right. what this is. I haven't <laughs> heard this in like 200 years, dude. Like, Right, but it doesn't sound good. No, not at good. all. She's got a dragon with her. She's talking to the dragon. She can speak parcel tongue. It's not fun. Like, Ooh, uh, yeah. Parcel tongue. That's another thing. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. One, one thing I got into about... Um, and, and we'd have to make a distinction in it is that... In linguistics, there's a really fine line between human 
communication language and animal communication, which is, I think oftentimes people are, are drawn to mammals like we want to identify with things, even if, if they're not like us. We always want to try and, like, include others in our process, you know. Okay. So I think sometimes we mistake and we're like, oh, like, if we can teach an ape sign language, they can produce sign language and they can speak, you know. But that's not what's going on. The process between what happens with a person when you teach them that and when you teach an, an animal that is that an animal is only going to remember that pattern within that set very limited kind of box of what you want them to do but a human we're a bit different we can pull from past knowledge we can you know try new combinations we can produce new utterances animals can't really do this in a sense you can see that with kids kids try to invent new words based on stuff on things that they know right and so i i think all the time too that like george r R. martin plays a really fun dance if you will between this relationship of language versus communication and you'll see often that like before the characters have to make this intense like character changing moment uh in the books at least they'll have these dreams and they're just like you know plagued with them but they're imagining that they're the animal and that like you know they don't have to communicate that they can just take and like it's that warging that's that's so intoxicating it's like the the lack of language like the the desire you know the complete surrender to this like other kind of dimension of of being in a way we all kind of wish that we were a little bit like you know the the animals that we're trying to teach yeah Yeah. yeah, yeah. you know that actually connects to to the new podcast that uh that i posted uh with Rutger about evolution uh, yeah I was I was going crazy because I I, um, I listened to that oh, I was about to get off work and I was just like oh my god that's like that's exactly what I, I was thinking about and what I was talking about so <laughs> okay go on go on sorry yeah Vygotsky like he was I, I, yeah I'm just gonna pull that out who is he who but, is yes he? all right so <laughs> we have Chomsky he we have the great he, he. So Chomsky wrote all of this in the 60s, and he came up with this concept of language acquisition, that humans can acquire it. Later on, uh, Krashen develops these five hypotheses of describing that these could be two separate processes. And these... Who is he? Krashen is a... American also? I think he is, yes. I I, I didn't look that up. I'm sorry. I'm just super lazy that way. But um, sorry, (laughs) Krashen, forgive me. But um, so essentially he has these five hypotheses. And then... um, But he argues that they're two separate and distinct things that will eventually meet, but you can't really expect it. I think Vygotsky, who is a Soviet... He, he was a very famous Soviet sociologist, I believe, and he he was just leagues ahead of his time. Like, this man was a genius, and uh, he dies in 1934 of tuberculosis, and Stalin... 34? 1934, yeah. I thought wow. he might have been purged, so I was like, I was Google-checking myself. I was like, was I right? 
No, it's wrong. No. All right, we're just gonna we're just gonna go with it. But um, let's assume. Let's assume he's was birth. Right. Right. Tuberculosis. What is that? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> code name. Code name. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like he's he's after his death, um, he's kind of promoted as this premier Soviet linguist, and he believed in these three steps of integration between this. L1 process of psychological imitation to our environment and the L2 process of discerning meaning. And he calls that the zone of proximal development. (laughs) And that these two will eventually collide. And second language speakers, multilingual speakers, especially if they're using English as their, their additive language, it doesn't even have to be their second. They experience a lot of issues because they're just... Not so much like they don't understand the grammar of it, but it's more of like the American or the Western concepts of society that are put into our words. So like definitely, you, yeah, definitely. And um, so often we're having to teach students not so much like, and it's kind of becoming a little bit of a revolution, I think, in our in our field. If you if you can call linguists revolutionists, in the sense that we're trying to change the way we view um, standard language. So we're talking about a lot, like, with common tongue and Valyrian. It's a lot of, you know, different things. So how can we, like, distinguish, like, which one is, like, the most important one, right? And that's what we call the standard. The revolution in linguistics is that we're trying now to teach the colloquial, the the realistic, things that occur in, like, actual speech versus things that you were probably drilled at in school one of my favorite um things uh was this i I can't even remember the comedy that it came from but andy kaufman was playing this immigrant character taxi driver doesn't speak any any english has like this like little book with him and he's like hey like i learned like three words today thank you have a good day how are you you know and the guy's like what are you talking about and he like flips to the back and there's like an appendix and he's like here, here's all the words that you need. Get off my back, you know, like, get out of my way, you know. I just thought, like, that's so interesting that, like, all language books are constructed like this. They all have, if you remember, any every single one that I had, it was like, yeah. how are you? My name yeah. is Marsha. I wear a white shirt, you know. But then, like, in the back, it was like, yeah. you know, oh, hey, where's uh, where's Marsha going after, you know, school today? Or, like, you know, hey. where are all the cool spots at? Or, I don't know. <laughs> and, like, the first thing that, 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 that people who live where you go teach you is, like, curses and just, like, right. that kind of stuff. Okay, so, so you are bilingual, right? Yes, yeah. Well, I I, I don't know. Like, you um, would you consider yours? Yes, yeah, I do. But I... I I'm very particular. I'm in the middle of, like, my journey of that. So when I say, like, bilingual, I think a lot, like, in English, but I interact a lot with German. So, like, my computer settings are in German. uh, My phone settings are in German. And um, I talk to my mom and my dad sometimes. But there's other instances where, like, if I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm going to think in English. It's, it's okay. just, it's something I can't help. So, so just like to give background, so you were raised partly in, uh, in Germany. You're not just weirdly right. sp- speaking in German and having your settings <laughs> in German for no, no reason. No, no, no. <laughs> I had to, right, I had to be exposed right. to it. And it's a really, like, unique kind of story in that sense. Just when we moved over there, um, 
we, we had a really big family. That's why I'm saying, like, so many sociological factors play into how one, like, learns and acquires another language. Because when we moved over there, just my family, we're a really big family. My, my mom and my dad are just very open, you know, happy people. So when we moved there, everybody was really receptive to us. And we really assimilated ourselves into our village's culture. And we're really embraced by that. But with a lot of speakers of other languages that doesn't happen you know you try your best and you're kind of dejected you're rejected. rejected sorry you know yeah and it doesn't always like succeed in that sense i think i think there are a lot of interesting uh, differences between hebrew so my first language was my first languages were actually hebrew and greek i forgot greek i was born in athens and uh, until the age of three i forgot it and then I learned English, but we moved again to Brussels, to Belgium, so my French overtook my, my Hebrew. I remember one time, I will never forget that day, I was sitting with my brother and I started to think in French, and that was so weird. But then we came back to Israel, and then again my English, because English is everywhere, so my English now is better than my French. And I find myself, first of all, so when I go to whatever, the U.S., and I interact to, uh, in English yeah. for a long time, I can feel my head thinking differently because English is much more circular than Hebrew that is very direct, very succinct, two or three words. Like whenever yeah. you translate something from English to Hebrew, you lose uh, 40% of the amount of words that you need. And, and if you try to speak, to translate directly from Hebrew to English, then you just are very, very rude. It's, it's very, very rude. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to okay. like reprogram yourself when you switch over to, to another language. Right. And maybe if we go back to the story and we go back to the conclusion for Daenerys, she didn't really try to do it, at least from what we see right in the, in the show. She was just like, I'll, I'll do the same thing that I did up to now in Essos. It worked for me. So I'm going to do the same thing here and it's going to work. Right. And I think like that's not so much like a fault of Daenerys is that that's just a fault on us all that we're always going to try and conform the the acquire the learn language to our first. We're always going to try. There's always like this interstasis of interlanguage or translanguaging where you're compromising your two processing systems, because like you're saying, it's a reprogramming of how your mind's working. You're going from one mode to another. So it's not so much like a fault of hers in that so much, you have to like look at the people around her if you want to understand her failures. And it's like, who did she go to? Who was her feedback? Who was her source of, um, of second language use? And I have to think it had to be Jorah. And I think Jorah as this multilingual, he, he was just one of the most low-key, powerful people in the entire story. And it was just such a surprise to, like, think about that. Yeah. Because if you, if you go back and you reread it, and a lot of, like, her scenes in Karth and in uh, before they even reach yeah. Karth, anytime, like, when they're in the Dothraki Sea, she's always, like, dispatching Jorah to go do it. Because she's like, no, Jorah, you're, like, the only one who can speak. Not just, like, the language, but you're the only one who can talk to the people on the docks. Like, you're the only one that they can relate to. Like, if they come and they see me, like, they're not gonna, you know, they're just gonna be like, oh, Daenerys, Dragon Queen, you know? But if they see you, they're gonna be like, oh, who's this guy, you know? But he seems an honest man, you know, kind of thing. So there has to be, like, several layers of connection there. I think Daenerys, like, first failed to connect with the small folks. So if you really, like, wanted to get into the nitty-gritty, I think 
it was ultimately her and Tyrion's failure to not properly propagandize her 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 return. If I were Varys, if I were Tyrion, I would have been sending out mass tweets all the time, like all forms of communication. Maybe even slowly like blend it into um, Valyrian, and it could be like supposedly like the language of the free or something. Right. I don't know. This is this is just gross invasion tactics yeah. 101. Yeah. Like but we're not above that. We're not above that. Let's do it. I'm saying that like <laughs> if you were to somehow like amass the people right. to your side, you could do so linguistically by like adhering to this like we said before, the oppressed oppressor dichotomy of just right. like the common tongue is the language of your oppressor. We are going to give you the language of, you know, the liberator, right. you know. She could say I'm both. I'm both I speak the common tongue right. like you, but also I have the the Targaryen Valyrian side. We're gonna do a repair of the of the Targaryen break that we've had with my father. This would be like the repair. We're gonna build something new that is more uh, organic, or something like that. <laughs> you could always like try to bring the zone of proximal development together to a point of melding, but if you don't meet those like like very specific like temperatures it's gonna just completely fall apart and disband i've always like thought of an interesting linguistic situation was the moment before she decides to go to king's landing so before i saw the behind the scenes and before they had to explain themselves i thought it was pretty interesting how um because i've never watched any episode more than i've watched the bells probably just to try to like understand what was going on and one of the points I thought was most interesting was Daenerys's very fast code switching. And just, yeah. it was so interesting because a lot of uh, my friends um, in the linguistic community and just like um, friends in my, in my Game of Thrones community, um, especially my friends of color, they were just kind of like, that's so weird that like she would want to like switch it over that way. And I think that that's just like a writing convenience. But the code switching is a very like, interesting part of Daenerys's dynamic because she can go automatically you know you you know as the viewer that something's off if like you know she sees John she knows only you know she knows John's monolingual so she turns and she's just like go do this like it's not even to like say anything explicit it's just to give John the implicit idea of like this is you are so stupid like and uh, like honestly, that's what made me so frustrated about how fast that she fell. Because you're talking about when uh, when she when she spoke to to Grey Worm in Valyrian uh, when he was there, right? The the so like the the whole it fed into the whole fear love uh, the Machiavellian principle, you know. And I think Machiavelli really understood the importance of not just like standard in your national language, but standard in your dialect too, because he was a prince. From Flo- or no, yeah. not a prince. Yeah. He wasn't a prince, but he served the princes of, of of Florence, and he was very successful at it. But he could understand the importance of growing up in like one area. So I like another interesting uh, person to look at, though she might be monolingual, is Cersei because she acquires two different dialects. She has her her native. Casterly Rock, Westerland okay. dialect, probably that she would have grown up with, and then she's brought to court at yeah. a very young age, at you know twelve or thirteen. It shares similarities with Sansa's journey as well. Right, right. I was thinking about that. Yeah, and so you can connect these two characters as like 
essentially like their their both of their journeys are um they understand like the standard but now that they are in king's landing they have to learn the dialect of like king's landing lords or like grace's common tongue you know like the the common tongue that you would only speak in the red keep on you know the the seventh day when the sun is shining and you know joffrey <laughs> but you know what it, it it reminds me of the first uh, sansa pov chapter in a game of thrones yeah and it seems as if she knows this language as if her mother tongue is this and this is where i can say that i think she should have been queen right that her her nature yeah. She speaks it, she, she doesn't speak the northern kind of, uh, of language like Arya. Right. She speaks like the southern way. She, she's like very good with the Curtsy and with Barristan Selmy and with Renly and with the Cersei. She knows how to speak right. like this royal court uh, language that uh, it's not really clear how she would have, uh, like she, she, she's basically a natural, a natural. She can boom, boom, boom. She can pick this up. You know, she can observe and she knows exactly what to say. Whereas, like, Arya can't. Arya, Arya refuses. You know, she's brought in kicking and screaming. And then they're like, oh, look at her. She's so wild. Right. You know, she's as wild as her wolf. You know, and she's just, like, completely incompetent. But then again, like, she's never seen focusing in her studies with the Septon up there. And she, it's described that Arya is the most Stark-like of, of Ned's right. true-born children. And I, I think, too, that's you bring up a really interesting parallel where you have to also consider in language development kind of the lineage of like of hereditary in a way. So it's like you kind of don't control your fate oh. <laughs> as far as like how many languages you learn. Right. That's kind of dependent on what you're exposed yeah. to. And that exposure is dependent upon your parents' experiences or your caregivers' experiences. So whoever's providing all this feedback for you also has to like exhibit some sort of ability or like you know processing themselves so like for instance i don't i don't think you would have ever been able to really like learn french or like concretely like synced it in without these critical um interpersonal yeah. interactions that you would have especially like you were saying it was with you and your brother too when like such a connection was mm -hmm. made and Oftentimes, like, I, I feel very connected with my sisters when I'm speaking German to them. It's really fun, especially, like, you know, if you're, like, out and about and you're, like, in play, you can just kind of, like, uh -huh. you know, ah. it's like, oh, what does that word mean? Oh, it's, like, it's just a German it's word. It's a secret it's language. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, secret, uh -huh. secret, secrets. I think this could be basically three separate podcasts, but but let's let's try and yeah, this is so much fun. <laughs> yeah, it's so much fun. So Arya then she goes to the to the house of black and white, and there there's right. also like a like a totally separate language. Right, she has to learn it all over again, and I think this time it's like more, it's like it's actually visceral, and the writing in it is so good because like she's made blind, right? So she's blind, she can't see a lot of linguists especially those in phonetics and phonology. So real quick, phonetics is broad, you know, understanding of sound systems. Phonology is like one very specific. So like Hebrew is a good uh, case for phonology because um, I, it, by my understanding in your morphology and your written word, you omit every yeah. vowel, right? When no you're vowels. writing. Yeah. And no vowel, but it's enunciated, yeah. and you pronounce it like when right. you're speaking. You have like uh, like dots and stuff, like punctuation, but nobody uses the punctuation, so you just have to 
infer from the... Remember. Yeah, remember. Exactly. Remember. I think that's something akin to, like, what Arya's going through with learning. It's like, she's having to develop this extra sense Mm. of, you know, language learning, kind of like that, where she has to infer meaning and rely on it, you know, to, to build her interactions with the world. She's, like, touching everything. She's probably, like smelling everything trying to do it so the the experience of it must be so much more you know she must be the most amazing bilingual speaker ever you know because she's she would have had to have gone through this complete reprogramming of her brain to to learn this other language in a way i think it's a really brilliant plot point martin uses the blindness and her sight in the books not in the not in the show for me but like But, I mean, it goes to show in the show, too, and it's why, I guess, like, the character Arya doesn't really, why why it kind of fails to develop, you know, after after season six. Yeah. So so in the books? Yes. And then, so in the books, like, there's this, like, extra level of, of learning. And she's putting faces of other people, so she has to speak like other people from different backgrounds. She has to. Yeah. Ooh, Wow. Mm. Fun. That's fun. Oh. Linguistics is fun. Yeah, it's it's freaky, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, just... so we have to do another one. We have to do another one because okay. this is already like forty minutes long. I think. Uh, yeah. Okay. We have to yeah. do another one. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Very good job, Mallory. Very yeah, good job. Yeah. <laughs> uh... Do you do you watch The Expanse? I just started watching it. I'm hanging out with my roommates all the time, so we're just all this hive mind. So like. <laughs> um, but I've been watching uh, Cheers a lot, so I'm desperate cheers? for uh, yeah, <laughs> Cheers. I'm not sure that's a Goth Academy style, but I'm get, but maybe I, just like try the the pilot for the Expanse. I'm getting yeah. into the Expanse. There's like a big community, very very loyal and uh, active community, and there is so there, you have like Earth, you have Mars, and okay. you have the Belt. So you have like three different human communities very, very far away. And they speak differently, obviously, because of culture, because of history, and they're far away. And in the belt, you have all kinds of different uh, 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 dialects mixed in that you can see in the show. I've only seen like four or five episodes, right? But they have different accents. I think you can have a field day. I think you could that. too. And I think like what everybody could really have at the end of this... Um, just so we can kind of like wrap it up neatly as like, just like if you're reading about it and you're like finding yourself upset, like and frustrated with it. Uh, so thank you, Mallory. No this has been super interesting. You are the first contributor. Yay, yeah. everybody. If you enjoyed this conversation, you want to share it in your social platform, or you want to send it to your friends, you want to tell somebody that you like this podcast, that would be a big help. And uh, we'll see you all in our next contributor. And uh, yay, that was a lot yeah. of fun. Yay, all yay. Right, Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. We did it, gal. Yay. All right. Thank you, Mallory. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. Please make sure you follow the podcast to get all our new podcasts every week, at least one per week every Monday. And I'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody.